Welcome to Christ in the Chaos, where a pastor's kid and a kid's pastor share their messy attempt at raising a Christ-centered family. We may not know what we're doing, but we are right in the thick of it. And this is how we're finding Christ in the Chaos. Welcome to Christ in the Chaos. I am Kathleen here with my husband, Joel. (gasps) I usually say my own name. But you can say it. It's fine. Um, And we are going to be joined again today by um, our brother-in-law, Christopher Watson or Jamerson Watson, depending on where you know him from at which stage in his life, uh, currently professionally and in print Jamerson, um, if you go looking for him. And today we are going to be continuing with the 16 bridge building tips for white people. We are going to be doing tips six through 10 with him. And before we get to that, I have something to share. You ready? I'm ready. What are we sharing? People are born into racism like a hot cup of water. And when you're born into this world, it's like the racism tea bag is dropped into your hot cup of water. And there's nothing that any person in this world can do to avoid having the racism tea bag steeped into their hot water. Now, some people, they have parents or an environment where the racism tea bag really affects them and it makes it like like they're strong tea. They're like really racist. And some people, um, their racism is like somewhat mitigated by their parents or their situation and their racism is weaker, but everybody is affected by the racism tea. All we can do is to collect information, which might describe as more hot water, to dilute the racism tea. And the more information we learn about uh, people of color, the more diluted our racism becomes. And I guess their system of oppression sounds bad. The more we learn about people of color and the ways they are oppressed, the more diluted our tea becomes. And the most we can hope for is really diluted tea in the end. So we're back with Christopher, uh, my brother-in-law, activist, all-around great guy. Um, black man. <laughs> and so important to the story. Now we're going to go uh, through six through 10 of the bridge building tips for white people from the Be the Bridge uh, program brand thing. I was trying to describe. She has a book. There is a website. It's also like a group and a Facebook group. Um, but, uh, and it's not she. I shouldn't say that because it is a group of people, but it's spearheaded by Latasha Morrison. And um, and she's the one that wrote the book. So that's who I always focus on. And Christopher is here. Hey, Christopher, how you doing? Hey, how's it going, y'all? Before we get to that, we need to do check-in. Christopher, how you doing? I am doing well, considering. Uh, it's been a pretty, pretty good week. Um, I had a group of friends who uh, helped me put together a really cool toolkit to help people take action this coming July 4th. So I'm still kind of riding that, uh, the high of having that get out the door, as well as the exhaustion of having that get out the door, <laughs> uh, pulling a couple of all-nighters <laughs> for that. Um, you know, otherwise doing pretty well. I looked it over. It looks amazing. Is there a way to get, um, we will link to the um, electronic way to get to the PDF in the show notes and in the posts that we put up for this. Um, but is there a way, to, this is going to sound really like stupid, but is there a way to get a printed um, version of that at all? Like, Yes, to ask download what, the PDF and print it. Oh, I know, but I, we don't, it's like, it's like 75 pages, right? It's pretty long. It's 40, or did I make, It's 49 pages. Okay. Okay. 
All right. Uh, I guess the Lutheran Church of the Good Shepherd will. I'll print it in non-color. Well, I'm glad that that <laughs> got out. Um, it sound. It looks awesome. We'll see. Hopefully, we'll take some action. Yes. Um, July Fourth feels weird this year. Yeah, it does. Do you feel that way, Christopher? I mean, you're probably not a big, um, I he don't know. He is from Texas. I know, but I just don't see him doing like the fireworks and like putting on like the silly outfits for July 4th anyway, but it feels weird for the first time for me. Um, how do you normally celebrate July 4th, Christopher? We generally, so as you know, when you're in a marriage, things definitely become a compromise. And so uh, I am generally not a fireworks type person, but Tara likes to watch things, ramparts burst in air. So uh, we usually, <laughs> if we have friends who are in town, we'll usually like go with them to find some form of fireworks. Um, but other than that, I usually just like to invite people over and watch a movie. Uh, but this year we're probably going to do something a little bit more civically minded uh, than yeah. normal. Yeah. But yeah, usually it's just like watching Independence Day or some other kind of dope, you know, uh, film about uh, freedom and uh, yeah, just having some good food. Yeah, that it just feels normally we put out uh, we have an American flag palette that we made. Um, and I kind of like, I want to put it out, but then I kind of also want to paint BLM on it and be like, it was, you should have heard the conversation we had about it. He's like, I kind of want to like put like black instead of blue stripes. So I want to, and I was like, why don't you just write black lives matter on something? And I put forgot it out. If, if that's really like, which is he was my trying to be very symbolic about the it. The quarantine has just fried my brain straight to nothing. Um, how are you doing Kathleen? Oh, I'm. I had one great day yesterday for like 24 hours. I was like, I actually wanted to play with our kids and my niece and nephew. And I was like feeling really good. And I felt like myself, I felt like my real, like non quarantine self. And I was like, this is the end of it. This is it. We're all going to be okay from here on out. And then I like had a great morning this morning. And then I went into work today and I had a like pretty perfectly normal conversation, but it like had a lot of like, this could happen in the future implications of it and I just spiraled completely back into where I was before so I I took a nap and I feel a little bit better but I still I feel like trash that's pretty much let's just be honest I feel like trash again uncertainty is a killer yeah it really is and on that very cheerful note let's talk about the 16 bridge building tips for white people tip number six don't equate impact with intent Yes, we all know your heart was in the right place and you meant well, but your words or behavior had a negative impact on those around you and that is what matters. Despite the best of intentions, as you navigate conversations of race, you will make mistakes and missteps and hurt someone. Humbly apologize and do better next time rather than dig in your heels and try to justify yourself or trying to justify yourself. This is a hard one. Yeah. It, it, not just for me, but for everyone because... Everyone's the hero of their own story. And like very few people do things, you know, it's a systemic racism problem. And so most people aren't thinking of the racial implications of their actions, even if they should. And so they're like, no, no, I didn't. I'm not. I'm doing that. And it's like, yeah. Christopher, as somebody who has white family, us being your white family, do you think this is like. Do you think you have more or have had to develop more patience for in this like good intentions than most people of color have? 
I think so, but not because of you all. I think so okay. because I did a lot of work in uh, high schools as a prevention educator when I was younger. And so when I was younger, like in my mid-20s. And so um, you would often have to talk to kids when you were talking to them about like, for example, sexual harassment, especially with boys, right? Like this goes to that idea of like privileged identities where you're completely oblivious to things that you're saying and how those things can be interpreted in certain ways. And so you would get a lot of young men who would be like, oh, you know, well, I just I just whistled at her or, oh, well, I just touched her shoulder, not understanding that although their intent may not have been like um, ill intention, the impact had an adverse effect on the person to which they directed what they thought was a completely like benign gesture towards. So yeah, I will say that is now that I think about it as I'm doing one of the bad things, which is comparing my experience. But since you brought up that specific experience, I feel like there's no way to explain the impact of being catcalled. And um, and I, I can hear what you're saying, like to to men and especially like boys, like their intentions are not to make you feel that pit in your stomach, um, but it doesn't affect it doesn't change what the no, that's actually a very. That's a very good way of explaining it to a woman. Let's put it that way. I actually had this conversation with a friend who was doing a, a I don't know, some a class on um, in prison, prison reform. And he was he would definitely start the conversation on the side of shouldn't we punish bad people? And we, we ended the conversation talking about, well, he has kids about our kid's age. And I said, well, do you, you know, what would you prefer? Would you prefer my kid be kind and loving and hit your kid? Or would you prefer him be a snot-nosed brat who is kind to your child? And it obviously we'd rather have our kids not get hit because the impact is as important Can't as intent. We have both though, Joel. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I just think it's important to remember that that the impact of your actions is as important as the intent of your actions because the, what you actually do is who you actually are. It doesn't matter what you feel. I don't feel like a racist. Great. Your actions are hurting people of specific races. Well, and I think that good intent is a barrier for growth, too. I want to ask Christopher something. Christopher, um, what would you say, or I'm actually from personal experience, if you would like, um, to somebody that when they say it was never my intent or, ooh, this is even better. If you could say it to them before they say the words, I didn't mean, or it was never my intent, what would you want them to know? What would I want them to know or what would I want them to say? I think what would you, before they say, I didn't mean, or it wasn't my intent, what would you want them to know? Good question. Um, I would want them to know definitely that intention is, I mean, and Joel, like as an attorney, I'm sure that you can attest to this, right? Like, um, like intention is really just a very, um, intention is just a very narrow part of what relationship is about, right? It's really about the mm -hmm. impact that our behavior has on folks. And so, um, actually one thing that I do when we're, whenever we're doing anti-oppression, anti-oppression training that I think is really interesting is when we're setting up uh, group norms and group guidelines at the beginning, um, one, if the group doesn't come up with it themselves, one that we'll always recommend is what we call oopses and ouches. So an oops is 
when you're in when you're in the process of saying something and you realize that you could have said something different and instead of going back and re-explaining why you didn't mean what you said you can just say oops and then explain what you actually should have said instead of re-explaining what you said that you shouldn't have said if that made sense and mm-hmm. ouches are if i hear something and it doesn't land right but I don't feel like doing the emotional labor of either quote correcting you or educating you. I can just say, ouch, just so you recognize that you said something that didn't quite land in the right way and we can move on from there. Right. So, and I know that's hard to institute in interpersonal relationships, but I think it would be a a kind of interesting experiment if you would, if, um, if folks did more of that, like, self-regulating without having to like go spiral into the shame and the embarrassment and all of these things that I feel like white folks feel sometimes whenever they get into these situations where they're saying words that in their heart they didn't mean but it still came out of their mouth whether they intended to intended it to or not yeah that's brilliant yeah (laughs) that's amazing I think it relies on that you need buy-in that second half they Everyone agrees if somebody says oops or somebody says ouch, that no one's going to get their feelings hurt. Well, not that you're not going to get your feelings hurt, that you're not going to escalate the situation. Right. But I think I also need to not get my feelings hurt. I think to our credit as a society, we have made you're a racist a dirty word. And so when somebody says, you know, you're being racist, people get defensive and it hurts your feelings. And that's good because racism is bad. But. It also is bad because if somebody just goes, ouch, then I go, well, wait, what, what do you mean that hurt you? I wasn't trying to be, you know, right? And you get right back into the don't equate intent with impact. And so you have to be willing to set aside your feelings and your ego to grow as a person. As a member of a small group, I feel like it would be really good for like a small group to agree to that kind of uh, system as well. Especially anyone I'm in. Um, yeah. Christopher, Amen. any last words on that one? Nope. I think that that was good. Number seven, don't explain away a person of color's experience of oppression. They are the expert on their own experience. Don't play devil's advocate or provide an alternative explanation for what happened. Take their word for it. Maybe ask follow-up questions like, how did that make you feel? Can you think of a time when this happened to you, Christopher? (laughs) Or like a million? Yes, I can think of... uh, at least a couple of dozen times where this has happened. Mm-hmm. This this is actually one that I think is interesting because it's almost like it's human instinct when we feel like um, we want to justify someone else's behavior, right? So for example, um, I remember a very particular time that is not necessarily related to race, but I think that it's a good kind of um, example for people to understand a little bit better. There was this one, um, I, I what I will say is I was with the DeMant family and I'm not saying <laughs> it was within the DeMatt family that this uh, this interaction happened with. It wasn't Joel. I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> oh, no, it could have been me. It was very. No, no, no. It was very early yeah, on. That's right? right. Very early on. And so we were at a um, we were driving somewhere like it wasn't cross country, but we were driving somewhere where it wasn't like within like a 10 mile radius. And we stopped at a fast food restaurant and there was a young girl who had this whelp on her shoulder that in my opinion, and based upon my experience of having done like sexual assault, child abuse prevention work, um, I knew that someone had had taken a strap and hit a child over the shoulder. And so when I consulted someone about whether I should report that, 
the person then tried to explain to me what were other possibilities for why that child could have that whoop on their shoulder. Now, that in and of itself wasn't bad to kind of th think through all of the you know possible uh, experiences or situations or what have you. But I think where this then parallels the experience of people uh, with people of color when it comes to systems, when it comes to interpersonal communication with folks, either other folks of color or uh, folks within the dominant culture, is that when we start explaining away things, we're also then explaining away people's experience. And I think this goes back to the previous one where that may not be the intent, but that is oftentimes very much the impact, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it definitely does. And I think it's very, it's a very natural instinct to want to think the best of people, especially in- You're being so kind. I would uh, say it's an instinct to say, if I were in that white person situation, I would want other people to look for my side of it instead of yeah. that person of color I, side of it. I just think it's particularly in the example you gave, because I know the people involved and I wasn't there on that trip, but I oh can tell gosh. you what happened. And I think it's just a, a matter of wanting to look for one and say, no, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. I'm sure that's not what, you know, and wanting to look for the best out there and, and not wanting to, and also being afraid to confront those problems. No, I hear what you're saying, too. But when you're saying, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way, what you're saying to the person that's expressing that they took it that way is that their re reaction is invalid. And so in in some, you know, you could say, oh, I'm just trying to see the best in people. But you're not trying to see the best in the person of color because you're making them sound overreactive and overly sensitive. And you're trying to diminish their it's experience. It's tear gas lighting. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway. Uh <laughs> um, so I, I I don't think it's as even as on innocent as you're saying like oh it's human nature I think that you really need to look like one uh, layer deeper well, than you're looking. If I look two layers deeper in myself, there is also a. I don't want to pull off the band aid because the ouchie is probably icky, right? Like I don't want to look at it. I'm not going to look at the 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 wound and then it won't hurt. If I don't look at it, it can't hurt me, and that's not easy. But that's like, I can do that because I'm not the one being wounded. I don't understand what you're saying. Not wanting to deal with reality. Like, I think that's a natural human instinct to be like, I don't want to deal with this ugly reality because it's hard and it's scary and it requires me to do work. Yeah. And it's your privilege to not have to deal with that reality. Yes. As opposed to people who have to deal with it every day where I can say, oh, I can just you know, cordon this off and close my eyes and it won't hurt me. Rationalize it away. Yeah. It doesn't stop it from hurting you. Christopher, any last words on number seven? Yeah, no, the only thing I would say is that like playing the devil's advocate, like I understand that as an instinct and I think it works, for example, in like, you know, and again, Joel can attest to this, like it works, it works well in like 18th century, like court of law. But when we're talking <laughs> about interpersonal relationships with folks, people don't need a devil's advocate. They need an advocate, right? Like, which is very right. different. Yeah, and I... Just think of who you're advocating for. Is I, that really the side you want to I be on? I just have an instinct to always take the other side. And there are times when that instinct serves me well and times when it doesn't. Speaking of, we just took his last word again. Last word again. I, we need to shut up after he says it. <laughs> I was working on me. Christopher, any last words? I meant that toward Joel as a lawyer, not Joel as someone who likes to play the devil's advocate. <laughs> Both true, <laughs> Thank though. Thank you. Number eight, if what you are about to say starts with not all, 
in parentheses, men, white people, evangelicals, police officers, etc. Don't say it. Conversations about race and racism are about systems, institutions, and ideologies more than individuals. Though this is contrary to white cultural norms, it is not helpful or necessary to force the conversation to fit our culture. There will always be good examples which fall outside generalizations, but do not derail the conversation by bringing up the exceptions when discussing the rule. This is one where I think me playing devil's advocate is an issue for me. Because particularly as a lawyer, when I look at things going on and I'm very able to kind of legal away that individual action by an individual when the problem is systemic and looking at a specific peace officer's action, looking at a specific person's action and saying, well, technically that wasn't a crime or technically that wasn't this crime. Um, it doesn't solve the problem that we have a systemic issue where you could replace every officer in that department with a brand new person and we'd have the same problems in a week because the system is the problem. I hear what you're saying. So as a lawyer, because we are taught to advocate for a single uh, client in a yeah. situation, an only one client and in a situation. Analyze the law and not separating out, I, at least when I was doing defense work, they talked about it as separating legal guilt and moral guilt. That often you had clients who were legally guilty, even if you didn't feel they were morally guilty. And it's a good skill to have in the law. But when you're talking about these systemic issues, being able to separate those two things is hard. Because when people are like, we need to change something, you go, well, actually, the law says blah, blah, blah. Um, Christopher, I have a question for you. There was a time. I hear this one, but I also react really poorly to the other side where um you know, I used to represent peace officers. That was like a big part of my lawyer job um, for two years. And I know them personally. And I had a certain person that shall remain nameless that we have in common turn to me in the middle of a card, card game at one point and basically say, all cops are bad. And at that point, I felt the need to, to play this game. Um, I'm, how would you react to somebody saying that? So what I will say is that I, it's interesting because in the work that I've been able to do, especially when I was doing work um, with victims of human trafficking, I work with law enforcement every single day. Like mm -hmm. every single day I was either interacting with a, uh, a detective who was, who was investigating the case, a, a patrol officer, or, you know, um, you know, maybe like a, a sergeant or someone who was, you know, out on, um, who was out during the, the, the streets, the sweeps that we were doing, you know, um, or a, C a CO who was, uh, when the kid got incarcerated, when I would go visit her. So at some point, every single day I was interacting with law enforcement. And when I was doing sexual assault work, also when you have a victim go to the hospital and they usually send an officer out to take a statement. I would say 90% of those officers were doing an amazing job. Like they could have used the, they, you know, there's, there's always room for growth, but mm -hmm. in general, the vast majority of those cops were doing the job that they were that that they were you know hired to do that they set out to do that day. I would actually say that the flip of that experience has been my experience personally with law enforcement, hmm. which is really interesting. So I'm kind of stuck with this tension of I know that law enforcement can act professionally because in a professional setting I've seen the majority of them act professionally, and at the same time. 
in all of my personal interactions with law enforcement, I've seen a lot of them that I know were capable of doing the job well that didn't. And that's obviously like then taking out my experience when I was just ticked that someone pulled me over. So I'm taking, I'm, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible and take out those experiences where the cop just got me and I just didn't want to be got, for example, right? So then the question becomes, is this then an individual offer, officer issue or is this an issue where the system has been set up so that when law enforcement is, is interacting with someone who is either in the victim role or in the suspect role, they are treating the person very differently than they are the people who are part of the broader mm. system. And so that's my question. I would never say all police officers are bad, but what I would say is that the system has been created in a way where police officers are allowed to get away with acting badly, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, I it totally does. And I think my thoughts on this, because it's hard, because it's easy to get into when something happens, particularly when there is uh, police violence, it's very easy to talk about that individual case and you get wrapped up in the facts of that individual case and who is justified doing what, as opposed to, okay, let's take a step back, right? Let's remember that, right, the first, the first person killed in the American Revolution was a black man who was participating in a protest who was killed by law enforcement. The law enforcement was put on trial and they were found not guilty, right? That, it, it goes way back. Um, I'll remember that when I'm putting off fireworks. Uh. But no, I, so my first client when I was a defense attorney was a protester, one of the um, 99 percenters when Occupy was going on. And it was right after, I don't know if you remember, uh, at a local Sacramento college, UC Davis, a peace officer had gotten fired because he had pepper sprayed a bunch of peaceful protesters. And he had just, they were all sitting there and he just casually walked down the line and pepper sprayed them all because they wouldn't move when he asked them to. I remember that. Um, so what I didn't know, but I found out through working through this case is that UC Davis doesn't have a peaceful protester protocol. Sacramento Police Department did. And so when my client got arrested, he was a peaceful protester in Sacramento. The officer walked up to him and per the officer's training, pulled out his little card and said, I noticed you are peacefully protesting. Unfortunately, you are being, you are in the wrong spot. I forget what it was, but it's basically, I see you're protesting. I'm going to arrest you. Will you stand up and be arrested? If you don't, we're not going to tackle you, but we are going to take you in. And they had a process. And so like 50 people were arrested in a matter of an hour, all peacefully. There was no violence. There was no pepper spray because there was a systemic process for dealing with this. And so that, Obviously, is a very myopic, very small example, but I think it shows how big a difference just having that training, having those processes, changing the system. I don't think one of those cops was a better person than the other one, but when you put people in a situation where you give them that structure and you give them the guidance, they're going to follow that path more like often a river. than they would without yeah. it. And so when we talk about reforming or defunding the police, it really is a matter of we're not talking about your uncle who's a nice cop or your friend you know who's a good guy. We're talking about the system is set up from literally the first person in the Revolutionary War. It It's set up for failure, and we need to change the system. Christopher, that kind of like leads me into a question I had for you. Um, because after the death of George Floyd and all of the protests that have been going on, it seems to me 
Like there's kind of the defund the police um, movement. And then there's also kind of the racial justice movement. And obviously they're very intertwined. But do you think it's dangerous that they become too intertwined where we think that if we properly train police, then we've solved the bigger issue? Like, is that a, has that, have you, is that just a weird thing to, for me to worry about? That's a really good question. Um, the, the short answer is yes, because I think that that is our instinct from my experience in this country, right? Like, I don't want to say that that's a universal instinct that people do that, but I think people are always, I think naturally we're, we, 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 we think or we would like to be problem solvers. And so you see a problem, you, you, especially if you want the pro, if you want the status quo, but you let's say you acquiesce to whatever that protest is and you respond accordingly and then things don't either work out or they, you know, return back to normal. And our instinct is to say, oh, see, we tried or is to say, well, see, this isn't quite working out. And so therefore, maybe we should go back to the way that we used to do it. I think that's a very real fear that people will use that as a justification to say, well, look, we did this thing. Now mm -hmm. racism is over, right? Like, look, we started hiring black police officers, whereas when a friend of mine in San Francisco's dad tried to get on the force, he wasn't able to get on the force for a few years, right? This was back in the 60s, and now everything is different. Oh, look, we've had a, we have a black president. So therefore, if a person who is wanting to be in office or get another job isn't given that opportunity, it's not because we haven't given people the chance, it's because that person is at fault, right? I think that there's a very, and that was one of the concerns with Obama becoming president, is that yeah. black folks pretty universally, not speaking for every black person, but I say that we, there was kind of a general thought that this would then be used as an excuse by dominant culture to call us a post-racial society now because we had moved past our racism because this one particular barrier was overcome. So no, that's a really good question. And I think the answer is unfortunately, yes. Um, it kind of, one of the things about it is it, it living with racism, which is not, there are, there are objectives that we can head towards, but the reality is it's a tension that we have to, I think, live until like the new the new uh heaven and new earth like until jesus comes back we're going to be living in some version of it and it's it reminds me of your like your life in christ where you're living in this tension of um sin and redemption all at the same time and that like one of the the biggest spiritual practices that i've been working on in the last few years is living in the tension of of who i was and who i i have become and um, i think racism is a is a parallel of that and i think it it just makes sense in in our spiritual lives that we're going to have to realize that there is no silver bullet to systemic racism, including defunding the police, including um, electing Obama, electing Obama. Yeah, that was definitely I remember people saying, hey, we elected Obama. Congratulations. Racism done. <laughs> Check. <laughs> All right. Any last words on that, Christopher? Uh, nope. I think that's good. Number nine. Don't demand proof of a person of color's lived experience or try to counter their narrative with the experience of another person of color. The experience and opinions of people of color are as diverse as its people. And we can believe their stories. But keep in mind, just because one person of color doesn't feel oppressed, that doesn't mean systemic institutional racism is not real. So people of color are people and people <laughs> are different. 
You know, it's funny. Um, one of the podcasts that I listened to was asking questions um, about like uh, it was they were bringing on um, a host like very similar to what we're doing. And they asked for questions. And the question that I asked is or how what is the best response to two people of color coming to you with the same experience um, that where yeah, you're right, where the impact on them is different, if that makes sense. Right. No, that's a really good question. I think that, I mean, ideally, the answer would be like, have more than two people, right? Like the, yeah. the, the idea is that <laughs> yeah. if you have like, if whenever we have a situation where um, we, we, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, we take the, we take the totality of like black people's experience and we boil it down to two people like those two people can't agree but then there's also situations where those two people don't right and so the question then becomes tricky because it's like well who to believe and honestly i actually think the answer is both people yeah what I mean by that is like you can believe that both people experience that thing or at the very at, at, at the very least filters that thing through whatever schema they have going on in their head at that moment it since the impact was different on them they perceive it very differently right like here's the thing like with and i would say this about all the targeted the people who have a targeted identity that i've interacted with right so i'll again use the experience of survivors of sexual assault which are you know oftentimes obviously it's different with children right but with, with adults we're talking like 85 to 90% of sexual assault survivors are, are women, right? So whenever a sexual assault survivor and do any type of like crisis counseling or intervention, what would always happen is that she would often try and justify what happens to her or what happened to her because in her mind, she's trying to figure out why it may not have been sexual assault. I, mm -hmm. think, I think that black folks are... They work, we, we operate in a very similar way when it comes to, for example, our interaction with law enforcement or when we walk around a store and we may be being followed by the store, you know, a store manager or, you know, we apply for a job and we feel like the person like before the interview even started interacted with us in a certain way. Right. Like we actually like contrary to what I think dominant culture thinks, we actually try and justify nine times out of 10 why that may not have been racism or why that may not have been discrimination. The problem is through then the totality of our experiences, like there then becomes this pattern of behavior where you see this thing once and you're like, oh, that probably was an anomaly. And you see it twice and you're like, oh, that may have just been a coincidence. <laughs> but when you see it a third or more times, then you're like, oh, this thing that I experienced, like I'm not crazy. Or, you know, I think uh, uh, Joel used the uh, word gaslighting or some version of the word gaslighting earlier, like gaslighting works for a reason. And so I think that we live in a culture that has gaslit people of color, that has gaslit women, that has gaslit trans folks, et cetera, et cetera, for so long that even we believe that the things that we're experiencing aren't, in fact, uh, malicious. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any last words on that one? Um, I would say... I would definitely say that, like, just really pay attention to allowing folks to talk through their experiences. And just because like, I think what some people want to do is they want to justify in their mind. So for example, one time a friend of mine asked me, um, I had been pulled over by a cop and, um, the friend of mine, when I was reciting the story to her, she was like, Oh, he racially profiled you. 
And it was like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm just recounting to you my experience of what happened, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was actually 8 p.m. at night. So I don't think he was racially profiling me. I don't think he could even actually see me. So it's just about listening to people's experience. People aren't always like trying to find like an excuse or trying to blame someone. Sometimes it's just through, through them talking through their experience that oftentimes they're a, you're able to connect with them best, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Tip number 10. Don't believe the classic trope that behavior modification on the part of the person of color would eliminate racism. In other words, don't blame the victim. People of color changing how they dress, what music they listen to, how they speak, or any other number of excuses will not eradicate, eradicate white supremacy. Belief in such a historical shift from biological racism, people of color are inherently inferior, inferior to cultural racism, people of color are culturally inferior. Expecting black, indigenous, and people of color to act more in line with white cultural norms is not the solution. Um, this, this is just a, I don't think I do this on a conscious level anymore, but there was a time in my life where I did this actually in the racist way. Like if he would just pull up his pants or if they would just right. move out of that neighborhood or if, if they would just like learn to speak the way that I speak. Like that was a, a conscious thing. Um, but I just like, I felt like the need to own this one because I definitely did this one in, in a, in a more overt and more racist way in my lifetime than, than most of these other ones. And even the other day I was actually at, um, there was like a women, there was a moms of black children everyone welcome kind of like daytime March here in Sacramento. And I was there and I was walking back to my car and there was a black man in between me and the car and the way he was like dressed. I was like, Oh, if he would just dress differently, like my brain did that, like people would accept him. And I'm like, this is just about him being able to like dress according to the culture that he grew up in and like the culture he was steeped in and not have to change into white ideals. But it like took me that moment for me to look at this guy and be like, Oh, he doesn't have to change. Your brain has to change. I had a conversation with someone, uh, with an older gentleman, uh, who was complaining about kids at church wearing hats and, and my, he, he was saying it was rude because they were wearing hats in church. And I asked him, why is it rude? And he said, everyone knows it's rude. They should know. I said, okay, but why? Why is it? It just is. That's what everyone says. That's what everyone does. It's the, it's the way it is. And that's all well and good until you treat someone differently, right? It was like, well, okay, so if a guy comes into your it – it happened to be boys. They were young men. Um. And I said, okay, if one of those guys comes into your your office on an interview to for a job and they're wearing a hat, you would not hire them because of their hat, right? Right, because they're rude, right? Well, no, they're not. It's a different like that I think that's a very harmless, but I think it's a good example, hopefully, that like your preconceived notions about what everyone knows, what everyone knows it's rude to wear hats. It's white, based on white cultural norms. It's based on your cultural norms. Well, it's based on and white cultural norms because the that's the dominant culture. Norms, yeah, like you're setting those norms and you need to be careful putting them on other people. Um, it's okay, I think, to say, hey, it's rude to wear hats indoors. It's not okay to treat someone differently because they don't fit your norms. 
Christopher, do you find yourself or has there been a time in your life where you found yourself um, adjusting the way you dress and act to meet white cultural norms so that you can just be more successful in among the dominant culture? Have I ever found myself in a position where I've had to like essentially like kind of kowtow to like white dominant culture standards and norms in order to feel like I fit in or was exactly. that Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Have you oh, ever yeah. worn cargo shorts to fit in? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I would never do that. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think that if you talk to just about any black person, like we've all done things in order to feel like, it, I mean, it's that whole idea of respectability politics. Like if I act a certain way, then I will be treated accordingly, right? But I think it's, I think it's so fascinating that like one of the most recent cases that we've been talking about is like Christian Cooper who for all practical purposes was this guy who like, there was nothing, there was nothing like stereotypically like black about anything, not, not only anything, anything about him, but anything that he was doing, for example, right? The, my, my dude was bird watching, like not, not saying that bird watching is white necessarily, but like, mm, it's pretty, it's pretty like, bougie. I, well, and, and so I think as a result, like we're, we're, we're now being forced to shift our conversation and say, oh, this is a perfect example where that guy wasn't doing anything to fit into this number 10, like these kind of classic tropes of like how people should modify their behavior. He was essentially acting dutifully and accordingly based upon white dominant culture standards, and he still was targeted, right? So like one thing that I think that we learned kind of early on is like, um, you know, shifting to other people's expectations of how you should be won't necessarily save you. And so that's kind of a hard pill, I think, for a lot of folks to swallow, especially people who have, you know, kind of grown up where, you know, I hear a lot, I, I hear this a lot from my, uh, from my like Latinx friends whose parents didn't teach them Spanish and taught them English because their parents were like, well, you'll make it further in this world that you, if you learn English. And we all know that like them being discriminated against throughout their life has nothing to do with the fact that they like didn't learn Spanish. And so Yes, I think that this is this is a tool of white supremacy that's embedded deep in American dominant culture, not just American, not just white dominant culture, but I think in American dominant culture where it's like, you know, I, and obviously the Lutheran church is way further ahead. Like I know that, you know, there's there's a lot of criticism to be had of the Lutheran faith. Generally speaking, one is not from my limited perspective with Lutherans. The fact that they, um, and I'm not saying that this is the case with all Lutherans, but I know for other evangelical faiths, for example, it's always like, well, we're going to go into these poor communities and do the, do this work because we need these people to start acting more like we act, right? And that kind of like deep embedded racialized paternalism is something that I think the church as a body needs to get over. Um, and obviously you all, you know, having conversations in the Lutheran church is important, but I especially see this around evangelical cultures. And it just, it's, it's, it's pain inducing because I'm then reminded of all of my experiences growing up where, you know, I was, I felt like I had to act differently, talk differently, walk differently, wear different clothes, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, in order to fit in. Do you have any last words on that tip? No, just don't do that. Like that's my only <laughs> <laughs> advice to folks. <laughs> All right, so that is the number six through 10. We'll come back next week with number seven through 16. No. Perfect. 11 through 16. There you go. Good math. 
Kathleen, would you like to pray us out? Um, I, well, first, I just wanted, I, because we're not going to at the end, thank you again, Christopher. I mean, obviously, we still have another one, but we're still very thankful that you did yes. this episode with us. Oh, no, right. of course. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time together of learning. We thank you for putting us in this unique situation of uh, having somebody that we love and trust and has been um, so grace-filled and guiding us through this. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come into each of us as we uh, step further into this journey of racial reconciliation and learning and bringing justice to this world. We ask that your kingdom come and that before it does, that we come closer and closer to a kingdom that looks like yours, that reflects the people that you have created, the way you have created them for uh, your purposes and help us to live that out in each day. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please take a second to rate and subscribe to this podcast. It helps others to find us and to be hashtag blessed by the discussions that we have here. If you want to contact us, you can reach us on Instagram at Christ in the Chaos, or you can email us at Christ in the Chaos pod at gmail.com. Until next week, we hope you have a peaceful week. But even if you don't, remember that you can find us and Jesus waiting for you in the chaos.